and open your Bibles with me. We're looking in John's Gospel, uh, John chapter 1, continuing in this series, as James mentioned, pleased to dwell. So my question for you this morning is, have you ever wondered when Christmas began? In fact, let me say it a little differently. When did Christmas begin? Now, I'm not thinking about it in terms of a sense of a date, right? Uh, We all know that we celebrate Christmas every year on December 25th. That date just happens to be arbitrary. Uh, We don't actually know the, the exact date when Jesus was born. So some of you who love celebrating Christmas in July, you just might be right. We don't know. I mean it in a different sense. I mean, when did the earthly life of Jesus really begin? Now, we get the answer to that question in John chapter 1, verse 14. The text tells us this, the word, now remember that term, the word, is referring to God the Son. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this really takes us back before Bethlehem. This takes us to that moment where Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb nine months before the delivery, that's when the real miracle of Christmas took place. The Holy Spirit of God overshadowed Mary and implanted in her the divine human person of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully alive, fully human, fully God. That's why in the ancient creeds, we say things like he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He didn't become the God-man in Bethlehem. He was incarnate at the moment of conception, which means then that John chapter 1, verse 14 is probably one of the most important Christmas texts of all of them, because really, without what we're learning from this verse... (laughs) the rest of the story doesn't make that much difference. I mean, what does it matter that shepherds came and visited a baby in a manger or that the skies blew up with angels or that the baby was born in a manger amongst smelly animals? Unless, of course, we have a verse like this. So let's review the verse together and then we'll unpack it. John chapter 1, verse 14, the text says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, as I think of this verse, two quotes really help me to frame the meaning of this verse. The first is from Bishop J.C. Riley. He said, the passage of Scripture now before us is very short, if we measure it by words, but it is very long if we measure it by the nature of its content. And haven't we been noticing that in John's prologue? These verses are just packed full of meaning, particularly this verse, verse 14. The other quote is from Dorothy Sayers. She's talking about the doctrine and saying why this doctrine demands our full attention. We may call this doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish, but if we call it dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? 100%. What's really exciting about Christmas? Well, it's not the eggnog, 
and it's not necessarily the lights, and it's not necessarily the presence. It's the doctrine of what Christmas is pointing to. God became flesh. Now, as we look at this verse, three words can help us to frame it. The first word is incarnation. The second word is habitation. And the third word is manifestation. Let's begin with this idea of incarnation. Incarnation. So this is the truth where theologians say that God took on flesh. John says the word became flesh. You have to notice the link between verse 1 and verse 14 to really marvel over this truth. It says in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. So you have this word who existed beyond time, and he has now stepped into the timeline. God has become flesh. So this word was God, and he wraps himself in all that we are. Now, the word incarnation comes from the Latin cairo, or flesh. And this truth is so central to our faith that if you want to test any religious claims about religious things, you simply need to ask one big question. What is that religion saying about Jesus? What are they saying about him? Are they saying that he is God come in the flesh, or are they saying something different? If you look at the early church, when doctrine is starting to be laid out for Christianity, they wrestled over this question. A couple of weeks ago, we acknowledged that Christmas is frankly doctrinal, meaning that it's making truth claims, and it's putting them right out there, and those claims make a difference. They matter. Now, some people in the early church, they really just couldn't get this theology of Jesus just right, just like people today can't. There was a group who refused to believe that God would become flesh. I mean, for them, that was unbelievable. No one's ever said anything like this before. So they would make a statement like this. They would say that Jesus just seemed to be a man. Now, they were called docetists, and docetist comes from the Greek word meaning seems to be. They thought that it was impossible to conceive of God becoming a human, because if you say that, then you are saying that there is a hungry and thirsty God out there who experiences human limitations, things like pain and, and tiredness. Why in the world would you want to worship a hungry and thirsty God? It didn't make any sense to them. Now, you take that a step further, and these docetists said that Jesus actually didn't even die on the cross. You see why doctrine matters? You start saying something like this, and now you're really entering into the space of salvation. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, you and I have no security before God. The Apostle John wrote about this, and he wrote into this in 1 John chapter 4. He says, this is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, 
that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. What we say about Jesus matters. You know, he didn't just appear to look like a man. He wasn't God appearing to look like a man. He wasn't half God and half man. He wasn't just another ordinary human being who happened to just have a great message from God to give to us. Now, as Christians have unpacked the person of Jesus, they've said things like this. He bears two natures. One nature is fully God. The other nature, fully man. He is the God-man. Now, we have to ask another really big question about Jesus if that's the case. Why would he do it? Why would God become a hungry and thirsty God? Why would he condescend in this way? There was a Canadian preacher, Leonard Griffith, and in order to explain this theology of the incarnation, he liked to tell the story of a Hindu man who really found it difficult to believe in the incarnation. He thought to himself, how in the world could the infinite God become like one of us, and why would God do that? Well, this Hindu man, he tells this story. One day, he's walking in the jungle, and he comes across an ant colony. And he thinks to himself as he's looking at this ant colony, you know, I would like to connect with these ants in some way. I'd like to show these ants that I don't, you know, hold any ill will toward them. I don't have any harm associated with them. I don't want to hurt them at all. So he steps up close to the ant colony, and his long shadow falls over the ant colony. And the hill disrupts into pandemonium. The worker ants, they throw down their loads. They go back into the ant colony. The warrior ants, they start storming out of the colony. They're going to defend this hive of ants. Well, the Hindu sees that panic, panic is raining, so what does he do? He steps back, and its shadow is removed from the ant hill. The sun falls onto the ant hill. And slowly, gradually, normal operations resume again. He began to wonder, how could I show these ants that I mean them no harm? And as he thought about the complexity of the situation, he came to one conclusion and one conclusion alone. The only way that I could show the ants that I, that I hold no harm towards them is I would actually physically need to become ant like them. I would have to enter into their risky world of walking around in the dirt and the grass so that I could communicate with these ants my human heart. There's no other way to do it. And that's when the doctrine of the incarnation clicked. Now, it's mind-boggling when you think about it because the distance between a human and an ant is infinitesimal compared to the distance between God and man. The Bible tells us that God the Son is the one who spoke creation into existence. He was the one who, like, was the builder of the universe, if you will. It tells us in the book of Isaiah that this God the Son knows every name of every star in the universe. There's three septillion stars, a conservative estimate of those number of stars, a number so large that I can't even contain the scale or the size of the universe in my human imagination. And this God the Son who knows every star by name, 
he limited himself and he took on flesh. What? C.S. Lewis, he said it like this, the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think of how you would like to become a slug or a crab. That's incarnation. But let's move on to habitation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this little clause. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Now, that's a great way of capturing it. It's one thing to care about a person's situation. It's another thing to move into their backyard. Now, we have lesser examples of God moving into our neighborhood in the Old Testament. For example, we read about the tabernacle and God's presence dwelling with the people of Israel, and then it becomes a more permanent form of that when they build the temple. But Scripture is telling us here in this verse that the ultimate way that God has moved into our neighborhood is in the person of Jesus. Now let's just kind of think about that this morning. Why did you buy the piece of property that you live in today? Why do you have your home where you have your home? And realtors tell us there's really three factors that cause us to move into a neighborhood. They say it's location, location, location. You'll see a picture of Katie's dream home on the screen there. (laughs) And you guys can be praying for me. I need to do really well in the stock market to live and keep up with her extravagant desires But when you're picking a a home, you think of things like what? I want it to be a safe place. I want it to be a beautiful place. I'd love it if there was good neighbors. If you have kids, of course, you're thinking about the school system and where the kids might be. And of course, if it has a view of the water, uh, we're not going to complain about that either. You see, when we're making our real estate decision, we actually diminish other considerations. We don't even care about how long the drive is to work for some of us. Some people will commute up to an hour in order to live in a really beautiful neighborhood. But here's the other side of that coin. The moment that that neighborhood starts going downhill, what happens? We put a for sale sign in the front yard. Guys, God made a really really bad real estate decision. You ever thought about that? He moved into our neighborhood. He moved into our slum, if you will. All of our problems. He willingly leaves the neighborhood where he was inhabiting or dwelling, where there's no sickness or death or pain or war or grief. And he buys a property into the very neighborhood where all of those things happen Daily, look at the state of the world right now if you need any, you know, examples. It's not pretty. War, pestilence, problems, vitriol, hatred, anger. God moves into this. Now you have to ask the question, well, why would God make such a bad deal? And the only answer I've come to for that question is, Sometimes you're willing to make a bad deal to be close to the people you love. 
Some of you might actually buy a house in a bad neighborhood, a neighborhood full of traffic, that's got noise, that might have more crime than you're comfortable with, and you do it because there's kids and grandkids involved. So God purchased bad real estate in our neighborhood. What does that tell us about God? How do you think he feels about you? Incarnation, God became flesh. Habitation, he moved into our neighborhood. Manifestation now. You know, Dorothy Sayers is right. There's nothing dull about Christmas. John continues with this idea of manifestation. He says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what kind of glory is John talking about here? What is glory? Well, glory is nothing less than the visible manifestation of the unseen God. John says here, we have seen. So he's using a word like They've gazed intently upon, think of a laboratory setting where you're analyzing something, you're putting it under the microscope, you're closely examining it. The Greek word is actually where we derive our word theater from. So here you have Jesus being God's feature film like we talked about last week. And how did Jesus go about revealing his glory? Well, one of the ways that John tells us that he did this is that there were signs or miracles. John actually tells us about seven such miracles. The first miracle is just an incredible miracle when you think about it, and it gives you a sense of just God and who he is and what he's like. It's a very mundane situation, a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And in this wedding, the host family has run out of wine. Now, you might think to yourself, well, that's not that big of a deal. We've got tap water. People can get some mice out of the freezer. We're all good. Not in this hospitality-driven culture. This is a big problem. You've ran out of wine. You're going to look like fools in front of all of your guests. So Mary, who I think happens to be a relative of these people, she comes alongside and she says to Jesus, you got to save their bacon. Now, at leads to a good question about Mary. What did she know about Jesus at this point to ask that kind of question of him? I think what it tells us is that Mary understood, because remember in Luke, she's been pondering things about Jesus. She's been taking them in. So she understands that Jesus can intervene in some way, though I don't think she knows the full extent of who he is. So she asks Jesus complies. He's a good son. They bring out these six tall stone jars. He asks them to fill it to the brim with water, and he turns the water into wine. Now listen to John's reflection of this first sign. He says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
He did seven of these signs John gives us in this Gospel of John, and each one of them are reinforcing this idea of glory in the person of Jesus, water into wine, healing the royal official's son, healing the paralyzed man, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and then it culminates into this ultimate miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead. You know, what's even more incredible than all of this is that's not the ultimate way that Jesus manifested his glory in the Gospel of John. The scriptures tell us that the cross was the ultimate revelation of the glory of God in the person of Jesus. Now we have to go back to John chapter 13. Remember that story we looked at last week. Jesus reveals that one of the disciples is about to betray him. So the beloved disciple leans in and asks Jesus, who is this? Who's going to betray me? And Jesus says, it's the person where I dip my bread into the oil and I hand it to them. He does that. He hands the bread to Judas. The text tells us that Judas then departs from the upper room. Now, here's what's happening right there. He's setting a ball in motion by leaving the upper room that is ultimately going to culminate in the death, the gruesome death of the Son of God. And in response to that ball being unleashed, listen to what Jesus says. Now is the Son of Man glorified. God is glorified in him. Why does the cross display the glory of God? Well, it is the perfect intersection of the perfect justice of God. He will deal with evil. He will deal with sin and the amazing love of God. You get no other event in human history that's like that. That's why we say that Christmas isn't dull at all, because you have the God of the universe taking on flesh, revealing his glory by saving humanity from its sins. So let's think through the implications of this incarnation. Remember, God took on flesh He bought real estate in our neighborhood. He revealed his glory. I think there are three implications that we can derive from this text. The first implication is that the incarnation proves that God has skin in the game. He has skin in the game. That's what the docetists miss. God actually deeply cares So much so that he doesn't just kind of mail it in or delegate down the angelic ranks and say, you know, you go deal with their problem. He comes to us personally. He's willing to get into the fray of human pain and shame and temptation and live with those things himself. He doesn't just care about us. He actually comes and feels hunger and thirst and cold and sweat and tiredness and muscle cramps. And let's just be real. He had to use the bathroom too and heartaches and mental anguish. And he goes so far as dying. I think that's a game changer. Because if God's willing to do that, boy, he must care. You know, I think it makes a difference for those of you who this time of year really struggle with the holiday seasons. Some of you, this is one of those times where you think about a presence that you had in your life that you've lost. And let's, let's just be honest, what makes 
any holiday or any event special. It's the people associated with that event. The people that you shared that event with over and over and over again. And now, they're not there. I've been praying for you especially this Christmas season. And as I've been praying for you, I, I was thinking about the reality that Jesus understands your grief. How do we know this? Well, you look at the story of the gospel and you get to his Galilean ministry and there is a significant presence that's never mentioned in his life. It's his earthly father, Joseph. Now, if that's true, if we can infer from that that Joseph has passed away, just think about it. Jesus knows what it's like to grieve a loss. He gets it. So when you're praying to him and you're telling him from your heart that I miss this person and I miss their presence, even though he's fully God, he was also fully human. He understands your pain. Friend, that is such a difference maker. Let's think of a second implication. The incarnation also proves that our humanity has extreme dignity. Because if God took on flesh, it must mean that humanity is extremely worthwhile in his eyes. And it's not because we did something stupendous or that we're inherently stupendous. I want to argue with you this morning that it's because he declared it. He decided it. He determined it. Now, this is an important implication in the world we live in today. There's kind of some dissonance in this world because I want to suggest that we live in a time where we've never been more self-focused and we also live in a time where we've never been more depressed. Things like suicidality and all of that going on in the world. Now, why is that the case? Well, I think it's because we're misidentifying where our value comes from. You might say, well... I believe everyone is valuable. I believe everyone's special. And I would come back at a statement like that and just say, says who? And you would say, well, I just happen to believe it. And then I would come back and say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what I believe. Who died and made either one of us boss? Where does value come from? Well, think about something like this piece of paper right here, right? I mean, why don't I just treat this like any other piece of paper? Why not just kind of crumble it up, throw it into the rubbish, walk away? I got all kinds of paper. <laughs> I got paper on my desk. I got paper at house. My kids, like, they draw all over paper. They strew it all over the, the floor. Like, why would I treat this piece of paper different from other pieces of paper? The answer is, the sovereign government of the United States of America has ascribed value to this. Value is ascribed when a sovereign authority says it's so. Which means then, just like this piece of paper, like I could tear this piece of paper, I could draw on this piece of paper, I could throw it into a puddle, I could jump up and down on this piece of paper, it still holds the same value as a shiny new one, doesn't it? It still spends. I could still go to the store and get my Diet Coke if I want to get a Diet Coke. 
Likewise, your value isn't changed or altered because of your circumstances. If you were to get in a car wreck tomorrow, you were to get in a nasty wreck, and you were to become paralyzed from the neck down, you're not less valuable of a person because of that. Likewise, you're not more valuable because of how you look or how much money you make or where you live. You're not more or less valuable because of the good decisions you've made in life or the bad decisions that you've made in life. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter how you feel about those things. What matters is what God says. And God, at the moment of creation, when he creates humanity, he makes man and woman in his own image. And now he's reinforcing the dignity of humanity because God became flesh. Whoa. Listen, I said that there was a third implication. But this implication you have to come and hear about at Christmas Eve service. Because listen, y'all, I'm a fisherman, so here's the bait, and we'll see if you bite. So Christmas Eve service, and just to give you a little taste of the bait, because it's really good, the incarnation is God's offer for life on steroids. John says in him is life. And he also says to those who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. What does he mean by life? And what does he mean that you could actually become a child of God? So you guys ready? Bates cast. Love to see at Christmas Eve service. In World War II, a soldier left home and he told his wife and his infant son, a common message that a soldier would say at a time like this, I'll be back soon. A little do people know when they're going out to war, they, they say there's a fog of war. You don't know what's going to happen as the war is taking place. So four and a half years pass. This father still hasn't returned home. The mom wants to keep instilling hope in the little boy's heart. So what does she do? She comes downstairs every day at breakfast, holds up a picture of the soldier, and she says, this son is your daddy. And one day, he's going to come home. Now, she doesn't know the answer to that, but she wants the boy to feel hope. So the boy, you know, when you don't have the presence of a person in your life and the more that that rolls on, you just start craving that presence. You start longing for it. So one day the boy says to his mother while they're going through this little routine, he says, Mommy, I just wish that Daddy could step out of the picture and be here with us. You know what that's like. If you have family that's far away, Zoom isn't the same thing as getting on an airplane and going and being with those people physically. John's telling us that that's just what God did in the person of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Jesus, God the Son, stepped out of the picture of eternity. He moved into our neighborhood. This God who didn't need anything, didn't owe anyone anything, 
He decided in eternity past, and then he fulfilled it in the timeline that he would become a hungry and thirsty God. I'm telling you, Dorothy Sayers was right. There's nothing dull about this story. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, thinking of this marvelous text that we just looked at this morning, we're in awe. It's mind-blowing. I, I can't even begin to understand why you would do all the things that you did that John's describing in this text. The only words that I have for it is that you are just an incredibly gracious and loving God on a scale that we'll never see outside of you because that's who you are. So this Christmas season, Lord, as we stop and pause and reflect and have moments in our heart where we're connecting with you, where we're talking, I pray that we would just marvel over Christmas once again. Like that child who goes and pulls that first present from under the Christmas tree and opens it and is delighted. Or like that spouse who believes that their spouse is going to be away from Christmas and then the spouse comes home and surprises them. Lord, we want that kind of response, awe, inspiration this year. Because God came. He wrapped himself in flesh. He moved into our neighborhood. And he has revealed his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.